Broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. mode. Thank you so much for joining us here on CPA Academy. This is Madisco CPA Academy. My pleasure to welcome you to this presentation. We're excited to get started. We're right here on time. We have a lot of our members joining us here today. So I'm glad to see you on this session. Before we get too much further, let's just make sure everything's working. You should be able to hear me at this point. You should be able to see the first slide up on your screen. Wouldn't mind just confirming that through the questions panel. Make me feel a whole lot better that we're in good shape. Ready to get going. Already seeing some people typing in, saying hello, saying we're good to go. We're excited to start getting some weather reports as I seem to uh, do on all the sessions here. Getting some thumbs up and exclamation points. So it looks like we have a lively, engaged, attentive, enthusiastic, energetic CPA Academy membership joining us for today's session, Mike. So that is good to see. Quick reminder on how things work here. You can't earn credit for today's course. It's very simple to do so. All you have to do, remain on the line throughout the throughout the session today. We have polling questions. I'll launch those intermittently throughout the session. You can see those polls up on the screen. We're currently seeing the slide. All you need to do, select an answer feels most appropriate. Hit that big submit button, and that's going to help record your attendance. When we wrap up here, we're going to get to work on issuing that credit for you. It takes us about 24 hours or less to do just that. And you'll see an email from us here at CPA Academy letting you know it's all set and available in your account. If you don't see that email, simply log into your account. You'll see your certificate waiting for you there. Any questions in that regard, please do reach out to us. We'll be happy to help you out. We are gonna to record today's session. We'll have that posted later in the day today. So if you miss anything or need to review it, certainly I encourage you to go back and do so. Made a copy of the handouts available to you. They're right there in that handouts tab. We will likely be making an updated version of the handouts available. When we have those, we'll put them into your CPI Academy account. So if you'd like to hold back, and uh, get the latest and greatest version, uh, simply check back in with us in your CPA Academy account. You can access those updated slides. Quickly want to say thank you to Citrix Sharefile, who is helping bring this course to our members today. They sponsored a lot of great content on our platform, as many of our members are familiar. We'll hear very briefly from uh, Dylan and Sharefile at the very end of today's session, but do want to say thank you once again to Sharefile for being here. And uh, Mike, I want to say thank you to you as well for coming back for to presenting to our audience. Once again, I know a lot of work goes into these presentations and the numerous topics that you have. So I appreciate you lending us your expertise for the next hour and a half together. Uh, I know there's a lot to cover, so I'm just going to step back. I'm going to step out of your way and I will turn the session over to you. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. It's an honor to be back again lecturing for CPA Academy. Um, this is a presentation that I'm very passionate about, and um, Matt was 100% on the money that it's a vast topic, and uh, we could go on for hours, if not days, uh, discussing it. Um, in law school, it's actually a one-term class, and I'm always reminded by how on the very first day, the professor told um, our small group that uh, this class could be as long as a year. Um, in terms of the amount of material to cover. And um, I know I'll be dating myself here, but that was over 10 years ago. And today with the um, with FBAR reporting and with um, 
all of the civil penalties and criminal penalties in effect to target taxpayers who have parked assets offshore and failed to report them on FBARs and 8938s and all of those fun forms. Um, I am sure that if I were in that very same class today, that the law professor would say that this could easily be a two-year course instead of a one-year course. So without further delay, um, let's jump right into this. I'm going to try and keep my pace um, steady because uh, one of the things that I recognize is that when you go too fast, it's easy to lose um, people in the audience. So um, I'm going to do the best I can to go through as steady as possible and as thoroughly as possible, but also uh, briskly so that we can cover as much terrain as possible. So this topic is on how the IRS reconstructs income in tax fraud cases. Now, before we jump into the elements of the capstone tax crime of tax evasion, I think it's good to um, provide a little bit of background about the criminal tax system. This is something that I take for granted because we cover it um, in law school in uh, on the very ver on the very first day of class, and um, I'm reminded by how it is a theme that constantly comes up in um, in other topics and areas that we explore when we uh, go into, when we delve deep into the criminal tax system. So the fundamental purpose of our tax system is to raise money for the government. Um, I think that everybody understands that on a very uh, basic uh, level. Um, and when it comes to criminal and civil sanctions, those exist to safeguard the revenue that is the lifeblood of the government. Now, the Department of Justice publishes a criminal tax manual that explains the role of the criminal tax enforcement system. It's um, a very insightful manual, and I've referred to it um, on many occasions. Um, I would love to just uh, paraphrase uh, what um, you know what they discuss as being the purpose of the federal tax enforcement program. And again, this is DOJ's. Uh, criminal tax manual, which can be a bit difficult to get a hold of, um, but um, it is available to the public. Uh, so paraphrasing, the Department of Justice states that the purpose of the federal tax enforcement program is not just to punish a tax offender, but more importantly, to deter other would-be tax offenders by sending a strong message to the entire population of taxpayers to give them the incentive to uh, report their taxes and to get right on their taxes. Uh, we have to be mindful of the fact that we have a voluntary tax system, which uh, places the onus or the burden on reporting on the individual. And there's almost a an implicit trust that the government um, extends to the taxpaying public um, by virtue of this tax system and the fact that it's a self-reporting system. Now from there, uh, we can talk a little bit more about the um, tax evasion offense. Um, it is a crime and it's considered to be the capstone of all tax offenses. And by capstone, I'm referring to the most serious of all tax offenses. Why? Well, it carries the most punitive uh, penalty in terms of incarceration and in terms of fines and penalties. 
under this uh, tax evasion offense, uh, which is also which can be found rather in Section 7201, there are found uh, two types of tax evasion. And I know we're going to uh, get a little nuanced here, but I think it's important to make this distinguish um, distinguishment between the two types of evasion. The first type and the one that you probably might be familiar with the most and that we see in uh, the holiday or in the um, Hollywood rather movies um, is the crime of evasion of assessment. And evasion of assessment is basically an attempt by the taxpayer to prevent the IRS from knowing that additional tax is due and owing. Um, evasion can be attempted um, through failing to file a return, but believe it or not, filing a false return is far more common. Um, the return can be fraudulent for any one of a number of reasons. It can understate income. It can overstate deductions or credits or both. Uh, by far, what tends to uh, be the biggest red flag when it comes to this form of a tax evasion, evasion of assessment, is understating income. Uh, that will always uh, catch the um, IRS and will always cause them to uh, do some more investigating uh, the understatement of income. There are also threshold amounts that tend to um, be more, um, uh, that tend to have more of a POW effect on the IRS than um, other amounts. Every year that amount um, is adjusted for inflation. Um, but um, it's hard to it's hard to sit here and say that X dollars of unreported income will automatically trigger a referral to the CI division of the IRS. Um, again, that's only one of many other factors. Um, however, at the end of the day, the monetary amount that was underreported um, is the um, uh, is one of the biggest factors that drives a an investigation into the evasion of assessment. Now, filing a fraudulent return may be accompanied by other acts of evasion, and uh, we've seen those in some of the Hollywood movies, including uh, Wolf of Wall Street um, with Jordan Belfort making false statements to IRS agents on that uh, beautiful yacht that he was um, he was uh, lounging on. Um, the obstruction of justice charge can be a very serious offense. It's not as serious as uh, evasion of assessment um, and because it doesn't carry as big of a punitive penalty. But nonetheless, um, it's usually um, a tag-on offense to tax evasion when the taxpayer uh, thinks that he or she can talk themselves out of a mess and decides to waive their Miranda warnings and speak directly to IRS uh, revenue agents or special agents. Um, other <clears throat> acts of evasion can be keeping multiple set of books. Uh, we'll discuss some of the badges of fraud as we go along in the presentation. Now, I want you to uh, contrast that first type of tax evasion that we just discussed, which is the commonly charged offense of evasion of assessment, with the second type, which is evasion of payment. And this occurs when the IRS knows about and has usually assessed the tax liability, but the taxpayer takes affirmative steps to thwart the IRS from collecting the tax. A um, straight 
uh, forward example of evasion of payment is one where the taxpayer stashes their assets in an offshore bank. Um, it can be in the Cayman Islands. It can be um, anywhere that's beyond the IRS's means of collection. However, it doesn't have to be that big. Um, it doesn't have to be as grandiose as that. It could be something as subtle as deliberately spending or depleting all assets in order to avoid having the financial means or wherewithal from which the Internal Revenue Service can collect the tax. And um, in today's age, where um, the biggest um, the biggest uh, uh, issue is um, the ferreting out of taxpayers who have parked assets offshore and failed to report them on FBARs, um, and the advent of the um, and the advent of all of, of FATCA and all of the treaties that are now in effect for reciprocal reporting of these taxpayers. Uh, we've seen this uh, example of parking assets in offshore banks um, uh, decrease um, in magnitude. It's not as frequent and as common today as it was uh, 10, 15 years ago because of the IRS's priority in ferreting out taxpayers who are um, doing this type of or engaging in this type of nefarious conduct. So now we're prepared to talk about the elements of tax evasion. Uh, you, now, you now have some background about the criminal tax enforcement system, the purpose, the priorities, um, the uh, maximum deterrent effect that the uh, IRS tax enforcement system tries to enact uh, when it does um, decide to prosecute. Uh, there's also a whole issue regarding limited resources. Um, the IRS's, uh, the Department of Justice um, in Washington um, that enforces the tax laws and brings to trial these cases um, has a limited budget and doesn't have an unlimited number of um, assistant U.S. attorneys at the ready to prosecute every taxpayer. So they have to be selective in determining who gets prosecuted and uh, which cases um, you know, they want to target for prosecution. In doing so, they take into consideration the deterrent effect. Obviously, um, Department of Justice Homeland Tax isn't going to um, you know, target somebody who has underreported $10,000, $15,000 and who perhaps might be later on in their years and in their late 80s, early 90s. Um, the backlash on something like that would cause a public relation nightmare of unprecedented uh, proportion. So they prefer to uh, target individuals that are professionals, um, especially those in the tax industry, in the legal industry, in the financial um, asset um, industry, and uh, high-profile individuals such as those who are involved in Hollywood and that um, the uh, public knows about. Uh, those tend to send a very strong message to the rest of the public not to engage in any tax uh, shenanigans. So now we arrive at the elements that the government has to prove for a case of tax evasion. I uh, must mention up front that we are in a criminal case. And so all of the elements 
that are listed here have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a very high standard and it, um, and it is um, drastically uh, higher than the burden that has to be proved in the civil tax context when the IRS is assessing civil tax penalties. In that context, the burden is one of clear and convincing evidence usually. Um, but in the criminal context, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's because our founders um, of the um, our founders of the country and the writers of the Constitution, um, you know, wanted, uh, were afraid of innocent people going to jail. And so there's this presumption of innocence that exists in the criminal justice system. And every element of an offense has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, that's the, that's essentially like pushing a boulder up a mountain to get to the very top. And, um, it's, uh, virtually 80% certainty, um, if you were to take a look at some of the tax cases and federal courts that have, uh, tried to explain it in layman's terms. Mike, um, just jumping in here, it doesn't seem like your slides have advanced since the beginning, so I want to make sure we're... Um, as a matter of fact, um, I, uh, yeah, we're not um, advancing yet. Uh, we will okay. be advancing now, so... <clears throat> um, we'll be Just wanted to check, thanks. Sure. So here are the elements of tax evasion. Um, they are that the defendant owed substantially more tax than he reported on his income tax return. The second is that, uh, that when the defendant filed that income tax return, he knew that he owed substantially more taxes to the government than he reported on the return. And third is that when the defendant filed his income tax return, he did so with a purpose of evading payment of taxes to the government. And so here um, I'm going to just discuss uh, briefly the elements um, substantial is a fact-specific inquiry that's left up to the jury uh, because what's substantial to one person might not be substantial to another person. But believe it or not, um, as, uh, as vague and ambiguous as this term substantial is, the uh, court, meaning the judge, instructs the jury to use its everyday meaning of this word. The Third Circuit, uh, where I reside, has also approved a definition of the term, and the definition is whether the amount is substantial um, is dependent on whether under the surrounding circumstances the amount of the deficiency would be significant to an ordinary person. So it's kind of um, you know going around in circles a little bit, and it's not a very useful um, definition, but nonetheless, it's what we use in our jury instructions in the Third Circuit. If substantial means more than noticeable, uh, we're probably talking somewhere around 15 or 20 percent in additional taxes. In an analysis borrowed from criminal conspiracy laws, and now we are um, making our way to the second element, which is an affirmative attempt to evade tax. Um, in this element, the government must first prove that the taxpayer um, contrived or formulated an intention or scheme to evade the tax, and second, that the taxpayer committed at least one overt act in furtherance of that scheme. And I'll expound on that briefly. 
The statute uses the term attempts. Believe it or not, um, that word attempts is not found in the statute. The courts have added affirmative um, to the statute in, an, in order to emphasize the seriousness of the crime and to distinguish tax evasion from other less serious tax crimes. So an example here, and this is really what I'm driving at, is that the taxpayer may intend to evade tax by, file, by failing rather to file his tax return. However, the mere failure to do something is not an affirmative attempt to evade tax. There has to be some other affirmative conduct to defeat the tax due and owing in order to support a tax evasion charge. Now, at the same time, this doesn't mean that the taxpayer gets off scot-free. He may still be charged with a lesser offense of failure to file under Section 7203 if the, um, if the element of uh, failing to file is there. What we're talking about here is that minus affirmative conduct to defeat the tax due and owing, we don't have enough for the crime of tax evasion because we haven't made out the element of affirmative attempt to evade tax. Willfulness. Now, this is a this is probably one of the um, most key elements of of, of uh, tax evasion, and at the same time, it's a very elusive term. Um, it's oftentimes been described as a chameleon in terms of how it changes its shades um, virtually, uh, virtually uh, on a consistent basis with different circuits um, defining it in different ways. Um, it's easy to define. The textbook definition or statutory definition of it is very um, is succinct. As you can see here, it's an intentional violation of a known legal duty. Uh, while it sounds very succinct and very uh, direct, uh, these each term in this uh, definition is loaded for bear and can essentially be defined in its in um, in several sentences, if not in several cases. Um, so every word here has very precise meaning. And while it seems very straightforward, um, it isn't. Um, and I can assure you of that because different circuits have interpreted this very um, uh, short definition in a number of different ways that sometimes even contradict one another. One of the, a few of the things to be aware of when it comes to this definition is that um, the taxpayer doesn't have to um, be an evil, insidious person um, in order for the government to prove willfulness, nor must the taxpayer have acted with an evil motive or in bad faith. All that is required is that the taxpayer knew that he had a duty to pay the tax and knowingly intended to violate that duty. Um, as courts have noted, and as we previously discussed, uh, willful is a chameleon which um, changes in tone and color according to um, the you know, very latest interpretation of it by the courts and according to the very latest interpretation of it by the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, what's interesting here is um, I'd like to discuss willfulness in terms of FBAR reporting because I think it definitely will help to drive home 
or what um, you know what is required in order for the government to prove it. Um, for those unfamiliar with the FBAR rule, um, it states that a U.S. person must file a, what's called an, a foreign bank account report if that person has a financial interest in or signature authority over any financial account outside of the United States and the aggregate maximum value of the account exceeds 10,000 in U.S. currency at any time during the calendar year. So um, very simply, if the account um, teeters over $10,000, it could be by one penny at uh, for as little as one day in the tax year, that would trigger what's called an FBAR reporting obligation, meaning that the taxpayer would have to report that foreign bank account on what's called an FBAR. It's electronically filed with FinCEN, and believe it or not, it's a creature of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, um, but it's enforced by the IRS. So it's not an IRS reporting form per se. It is a creature of FinCEN, and therefore is filed with FinCEN, but it's enforced by the IRS. And FBAR- Why don't we uh, jump in here, sorry, just to get our first polling question underway. Absolutely. All right, so that one is up and going. And just a reminder, polls are part of the CPE process, even if you're not here for credit. Certainly do appreciate you participating, helps move things along, lets us know that everything is working correctly. Also an update, if you check out your handouts tab, the newer version of the handouts are now available to you, and that's also been updated in your CPA Academy account. So we won't spend too much time on these polling questions about a minute or less, looks like the majority of our attendees today have a hang of it, or well past 90% having put in a response. So far, about half are saying, I know some, about 40% saying, I know nothing. 2%, well, they're know-it-alls, 8%, they know a good deal. So we'll give it just a few more moments on polling question number one. All right, great. We'll go ahead and close this down. And we are back to your slide, Dex. Super. <clears throat> uh, so just continuing where we left off, um, an FBAR violation can occur in one of two ways. First, by failing to disclose a foreign account on an FBAR altogether, or second, by disclosing a foreign account on an FBAR but underreporting the correct amount. Uh, obviously, um, the uh, larger the amount, the highest balance in the account, and the uh, more that it's um, underreported, meaning the lower the value that is uh, reported uh, as a deviation from the correct amount, um, the more that would give rise to the potential of a criminal uh, penalty for um, disclosing a, um, an underreported amount uh, for an FBAR. And now this gets to what I was driving at before um, in terms of the element of willfulness. Um, the way the courts interpret willfulness for FBAR violations is consistent with uh, willfulness for tax evasion. Um, the only thing that a person need know is that he has a reporting requirement. And if a person has that requisite knowledge, the only intent needed to constitute a willful violation of the requirement is a conscious choice not to file the FBAR. So again, the purpose of me 
um, uh, bringing this to your attention is that um, the person need not be an evil spirited or, um, you know, uh, nefarious uh, plotting person in order for the government to prove willfulness against them in a case of tax evasion. As you can see, the uh, requirement of willfulness is um, a lot less than that. Um, the, uh, there has to be a, um, a knowledge that the person has a reporting requirement, and that goes beyond the FBAR. It could be, you know, um, in terms of just a uh, regular uh, tax reporting form. And if that person has a requisite knowledge, the only intent needed to constitute a willful violation of the, of the requirement is a conscious choice not to file the FBAR. And uh, this theory is sometimes referred to as the theory of willful blindness. Uh, willful blindness means that um, you know a jury may infer willfulness whenever a taxpayer intentionally fails to inquire and learn about his or her filing obligations. So to the extent that the taxpayer suspects that he or she has a tax reporting obligation but digs their head in the sand like an ostrich to avoid learning more about whether um, that tax reporting obligation applies to them, uh, that in some circuits could rise to the level of a willful uh, failure to um, report and, and um, essentially could, um, you know, form the basis of the government's proof for willfulness in the subsequent criminal prosecution. Um, so uh, willfulness and, um, you know, and willful blindness is defined as when a person consciously avoids any opportunity to learn what the tax consequences were, and that comes out of an Eighth Circuit case. Now, <clears throat> how does the government prove willfulness in the prosecution of a taxpayer? Uh, they are uh, there are badges of fraud. Uh, we don't have the time to get into them. However, they are in the slide deck and they are available for your review um, when you have uh, the time to do so. Uh, we are one of the things that you should know when it comes to badges of fraud is that no single factor is dispositive. It's a totality of the circumstances test. And getting back to the FBAR example uh, that we've discussed, I've had uh, questions come in time and time again about whether if the taxpayer checks the box off incorrectly on um, Schedule B Part 3 of their tax return uh, that asks uh, or prompts the taxpayer for whether they have um, assets offshore um, and the taxpayer answers that question no, that um, incorrect answer in the box is not alone enough to make out uh, willfulness for purposes of an FBAR violation. Um, so again, this goes to how no single factor is dispositive. It's always a totality of the circumstances test when it comes to the badges of fraud. Ultimately, the jury has an obligation to look into the mind of the defendant taxpayer to determine whether uh, he or she intentionally violated the statute. But because uh, the jury obviously can't open up the taxpayer's head to see what they were thinking on the day of the alleged uh, violation, um, they look to the badges of fraud. And the badges of fraud is nothing more than circumstantial evidence um, or conduct of the taxpayer that would suggest that there is something nefarious going on and that the taxpayer knew um, about it. Um, in 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about the burden and standard of proof, um, so I'm going to go through this quickly. In civil cases, uh, the burden of proof is on the taxpayer. Um, and by civil cases, I'm referring to when the IRS makes a civil assessment in terms of monetary penalties. In the criminal realm, the government bears a burden of, of proof, and that standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. What does beyond a reasonable doubt mean? Well, it is proof of such a convincing character that jurors would be willing to rely upon it without hesitation in the most important of their own affairs. Um, it's an old um, hackneyed uh, definition that's uh, been uh, in existence since time immemorial, but nonetheless, that's what we use. Um, today, a lot of law school professors uh, liken the um, beyond a reasonable doubt, a burden to um, the uh, Greek mythology of that um, character who is uh, forced uh, for eternity to roll a boulder up a mountain. And yet, just when he gets to the top of the mountain, the boulder comes rolling down. And uh, then the character, the Greek from Greek mythology, continues to roll it up again, and he's, um, you know, destined to have to uh, live a life of uh, rolling it up and then having it come down over and over and over again. Um, but there's also um, a more precise definition um, that discusses that it's not um, you know, it's not a whim. It's not a speculation or suspicion. It's not an excuse to avoid the performance of an unpleasant duty, and it is not sympathy. Um, there are some courts that have even um, gone so far as to talk about percentages of certainty, and some circuits talk about beyond a reasonable doubt being 80% certainty uh, to distinguish it from what jurors might otherwise believe to be um, such full proof that it has to be 100% certain or that they have to be 100% certain in order to find the defendant guilty. Now, there are two aspects of the burden of proof. The first is the risk of non-persuasion, and the second is the burden of production. Um, it's important here to distinguish between the two as this distinction could impact the outcome of cases. The risk of non-persuasion never shifts. It starts out on the government and it remains on the government uh, throughout their case in chief. Um, contrast that with the burden of production, that can shift with respect to particular issues in the case. The overall burden of persuasion um, never moves from the government, but again, the production a burden of production can shift. Um, now, initially, at the start of the government's case in chief, again, we're in a criminal setting right now. Uh, we have a, a defendant uh, taxpayer who's on trial for, um, will um, we'll, uh, create this hypothetical to be a tax evasion case. The government has the burden of production as well um, as the burden of persuasion because there has to be sufficient evidence to convince a reasonable juror that the defendant is guilty. Uh, this shift uh, normally occurs in income reconstruction cases. So let me give you a basic run-of-the-mill example. Again, we're going to be sticking with the crime of tax evasion. Um, here we have a 7201 evasion of assessment case against the defendant, Adam. Uh, the government shows that Adam omitted $100,000 of taxable receipts from his return. 
The issue, uh, the very first issue that we're confronted with here in this hypo is whether the omission of $100,000 of taxable receipts alone is enough for the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Adam owed tax on an additional $100,000 of income and that he committed tax evasion. Um, now, by itself, this is not enough to prove that there was additional tax due and owing. And I realize that that might be counterintuitive to what you might be thinking. Um, as we as we've discussed here, you would think you would one might think that this case is um, one that is um, shut and or closed and shut case because we have a hundred thousand dollars of taxable receipts that have been omitted. But again, it's not enough to prove that there was additional tax due and owing. And that's because it's theoretically possible that Adam had unreported deductible expenses that either completely offset the omitted income or offset it enough that the resulting tax was no longer material under the definition of additional tax due and owing. And so let me just back up for a second. You might recall that when we were talking about the element of additional tax due and owing, we discussed it in terms of it having a materiality strand, meaning if there's only, say, $100 of additional tax due and owing, that wouldn't be enough. Uh, the threshold wouldn't be high enough to attract the attention of the IRS um, CI department to investigate it. It has to be the, with respect to additional tax due and owing, material or significant enough for the Department of Justice, but even before the Department of Justice gets it, for the Criminal Investigation Division to even uh, begin investigating. And that's because of limited resources, and that's because of the fact that um, the government wants to maximize its deterrent effect on the rest of the taxpayer public. One can only imagine the backlash that um, the public would have if the IRS were to be so vain as to bring a case where the amount of tax due and owing is only $100 or even, you know, in the low thousands. So the substantiality strand of this additional tax due and owing must be significant enough for the IRS to uh, devote uh, what is otherwise scarce resources into prosecuting it. And it has to be one that's going to maximize the deterrent um, effect on the rest of the taxpayer public. So if Adam, in this example, has unreported deductible expenses uh, of um, a magnitude that's significantly offset the $100,000 of omitted income, this might be a case that the government does not refer to the Department of Justice for prosecution. And so we have a handy-dandy rule that's carved out from this hypothetical, and that is that the mere proof of unreported income is not enough to establish additional tax liability. What if Adam remains silent and doesn't suggest additional deductions or credits? Must the government go out and investigate every possible deduction? Of course not. As we all know, the Internal Revenue Code contains hundreds of deductions and credits. It would be up to Adam's attorney, his defense attorney, to point out 
what deductions um, should have been claimed but otherwise weren't claimed on his tax return. And uh, that would take place usually in the stage where um, this case is slowly moving towards a referral. Um, the defense attorney who is um, representing Adam would um, want to delve into this issue as aggressively as possible by hiring a forensic accountant and uh, would want to uh, act expeditiously because the more time that elapses, the more likely it is that this case is going to get referred. Um, and so the goal of the defense attorney is to prevent um, the case from getting referred to the Department of Justice so that it doesn't see the light of day in a courtroom. And so uh, the importance of engaging a attorney and secondly, of uh, that attorney um, engaging a forensic accountant under what is otherwise uh, called a Covell agreement is imperative. And so that's why it's always recommended that the taxpayer waste no time and allow no grass to grow under their feet as soon as they are, um, you know, as soon as they suspect that a potential audit could go south fast. Um, and that, that's for the reasons that we just discussed here. Time is of the essence. Uh, the government, as we discussed, doesn't have to investigate whether there's a child credit. It doesn't have, they don't have to investigate whether Adam had more medical and dental deductions than were claimed on the return. Um, and they don't have to look at Adam's business and find any accelerated appreciation deductions that um, otherwise that he was otherwise entitled to that he didn't take under 168. Um, so once again, this all drives to the point that the government need not negate um, every possible additional deduction or credit. This is the job of the defense attorney who is working, uh, hopefully, hand-in-hand -hand with a Covell accountant. Instead, once the government shows that there is unreported income, the burden of production shifts to the defendant to identify additional offsetting deductions. Um, in this example, the taxpayer defendant must indicate at least some basis for believing that these deductions exist. Um, the defendant cannot willy-nilly say, um, well, I was... I was entitled to um, depreciation deductions. I was entitled, they, in other words, um, the defendant cannot just throw a putty up against the wall and hope that it sticks. There has to be a legitimate basis for believing that these deductions exist before the defense alleges them. Otherwise, there could be serious um, penalties um, that are leveled not only against the defendant, but also against defense counsel for raising false and frivolous issues at trial. Um, so it's very important that there's a legitimate basis for these deductions and that they are um, documented and memorialized uh, by a forensic accountant. Assuming Adam can produce evidence that he had expenses and deductions, which reduced the tax to the point that it was no longer substantial, the government's case must fail unless it can rebut Adam's version of events. So this is why this is a critical analysis uh, where the defense attorney explores 
um, whether they're expenses and receipts and deductions, which reduced the tax to the point that it was no longer substantial. Because what we're doing here, or what Adam's defense attorney is doing, is essentially negating one of the elements of tax evasion, that there was substantial tax due and owing. So even though that $100,000 of unreported income looks like a um, looks like the nail in the coffin or the smoking gun for uh, for convicting Adam. Um, the case against Adam can still fail if the defense attorney can come forward to introduce deductions and expenses uh, with that have a legitimate basis and that reduce the tax that was due and owing on that hundred thousand dollars of gross income to the point where it's no longer substantial. In that case, um, the jury uh, might find that there is not um, uh, that 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 the government cannot prove that um, that this element of substantial tax due and owing has been proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And in that case, uh, the government can't prove one of the key elements of tax evasion, and therefore the case uh, fails against Adam. Assume that Adam has some basis for believing that these additional offsetting deductions exist. In that case, uh, that doesn't mean that the case is lost by the government right away. The government can still, um, the, the burden shifts back to the government and the government can still negate these asserted additional deductions. And they might stand up and say, this is, um, uh, this is hogwash. Um, these additional deductions, there's no basis for them, notwithstanding what the uh, forensic accountant for the defense has attempted to show you, um, they don't um, meet the definition of the child um, credit. They don't meet the definition of accelerated appreciation or depreciation. And as a result, um, you should not, they should not be considered deductions um, that offset the $100,000 of gross income that Adam, um, uh, that Adam failed to report on his return. Ultimately, this is a jury decision, and the jury would be left up to decide who made the more compelling case. So uh, the summary here is that the risk of non-persuasion starts out on the government and ends on the government. The burden of going forward, however, will always start on the government. Otherwise, we can't have a trial in the first place. Um, however, that burden of going forward can always shift to the defense, and then it may shift back to the prosecution. And so what we could have is um, this... Um, a uh, tennis match, so to speak, of shifting burdens that go back and forth from the first um, shift where <clears throat> the government is um, making the first serve on the tennis court <clears throat> to, when, to where the defense now is um, hitting the tennis ball back uh, with their uh, when the burden shifts to them. And so I liken it to a tennis match, um, the shifting burdens. Now we're going to go. We, uh, before moving on, launch our next poll? Sure. All right. So that one is up and going. How familiar are you with the direct and direct hybrid methods of proof? Again, give this one about a minute or so. Very attentive group here, already blowing past 90%, having put in their response. So 
looks like our members are on the edge of the seats paying attention to today's session, as we would certainly expect. Taking a look at the results here, so far, 4% are very familiar. About 20%, somewhat. 45%, not very familiar. 31%, 32% are saying no idea. So we'll give it a last few moments here. All right, we'll go ahead and close down poll number two. And we're back to your slides, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Um, so here, we're going to talk a little bit about the direct, indirect, and hybrid methods of proof. Um, and this section will address uh, primarily the means or theories by which the government attempts to prove tax due and owing. Um, and this is actually a fascinated, uh, fascinating deep dive into, um, into how the government actually um, uh, makes this, uh, uh, proves this element at a criminal trial. Um, and so understand where we are right now. We're in uh, probably a federal court, although we could be in a uh, different forum, but um, it's usually a federal district court. And it's a criminal case where the taxpayer is on trial for, um, in this example, the crime of tax evasion. And as we discussed at the top, tax due and owing is one of the elements of tax evasion. These methods may be used either during the government's case in chief or at sentencing. Um, now, under the sentencing guidelines, that's a whole nother issue unto itself. Um, but when it comes to the sentencing phase of any uh, federal criminal case, um, the most important consideration um, at, when it comes to tax uh, case, uh, tax prosecutions rather, is the amount of tax loss. The larger the tax loss, the greater the period of incarceration for the convicted defendant. So essentially, tax loss drives the um, uh, the possibility and uh, of incarceration. And if incarceration uh, does become a certainty, the length of incarceration for the convicted defendant. Um, as unsettling as it might be, the government can um, uh, can use different figures at different phases of a criminal case. So they can attempt, for example, to prove for sentencing purposes a larger amount of unreported tax than, the, than it attempted to prove at the guilt or innocence stage. Can anyone think of why the government might uh, come forward with um, less amount of tax liability at the trial? Um, or the guilt or innocence stage than it would at the sentencing phase. Um, I can help you out here. Uh, the government wants to prove their case as, um, as firmly as they possibly can. And so they want firm, unshakable proof at the trial. And that's why if the unreported amount of tax is, say, for example, um, $300,000. The government may actually only assert a tax, uh, unreported tax of half that amount. And the reason why they may do that is because they may only believe that they have enough rock hard, unshakable evidence to prove 
$150,000 of um, unreported tax. Uh, whereas at the sentencing phase, they might um, they might assert that there was $300,000 of unreported tax because it, after the defendant has been convicted, um, it's easier under the burden uh, of proof to convince a judge um, that there was $300,000 of unreported tax um, because the standard is lower. And so one might think that it's a little bit dubious for the government to um, to uh, kind of have their cake and eat it too, uh, because what they're using is a lower number um, in the trial to bootstrap, or they're bootstrapping a lower amount of um, unreported tax in the um, in the trial as a way of getting a conviction, so that they can exact a higher level of punitive. Uh, damage against the defendant at the sentencing phase, uh, because keep in mind the amount of uh, tax liability drives the sentence. So they could theoretically, the government being, assert that only $150,000 uh, was uh, not reported as the defendant's tax liability at trial, and then turn around and do a uh, double dance, so to speak, at the sentencing phase and assert that $300,000 of tax uh, went unreported uh, by the defendant. And um, that is perfectly lawful and, um, you know, perfectly uh, legal for them to do that. Um, and again, the reason that spearheads that is that the government may not have as much rock hard, solid evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was tax due and owing of $300,000 at trial. It may only have enough rock hard, unshakable proof that uh, there was $150,000 uh, of uh, unreported tax at trial. And again, if the government risks uh, going forward with that $300,000 amount at uh, trial and the defense attorney uh, pokes some holes into that $150,000 that uh, was not rock hard unprovable, then the, then the defense can have a beautiful summation argument um, to the jury that if there was doubt, if the jury had doubt as to $150,000 of the amount that the government was proving um, was the tax due and owing, then uh, what then do you think about that, the rest of the amount? Um, do you think that, um, you know, what does that say about the rest of the amount of tax due and owing? Uh, there must be, you know, uh, just as much doubt for that second half of the $150,000 as there was doubt for that first half. So you see um, it's a slippery slope and that's why the government may cut the amount of tax due and owing in half as a way of um, securing uh, you know, a tight case and putting in a tighter case, an airtight case, um, than by uh, using $300,000 at the trial. So prosecutors can use a direct method to <clears throat> either establish unreported income or in a few other cases to refute the taxpayer's claims regarding expenses and deductions. And we have some scenarios here. In scenario number one, uh, this again is uh, by the government using the direct method. The government might assert it's right here. We can point to 
exactly what the problem is on uh, the on Adam's tax return. This deduction was claimed at forty grand, but it is legitimately only a five thousand dollar item. We can prove that Adam went out of his way to overstate thirty five thousand dollars of deductions. Um, again, this is in a case where the government's relying on the direct method in order to prove uh, that there was tax due and owing, one of the elements of tax evasion. And scenario number two, taxpayer got $75,000 worth of receipts from person A. Those, these receipts were taxable, but the taxpayer never reported them on his tax return. The IRS's argument here is um, is very uh, simple. It's um, you know a shut and closed case. We can identify precisely where it is on the false return and how it gave rise to the additional tax liability due and owing. Typically, the government will compare the claimed or reported amount on the tax form to the actual receipt. And by doing so, it effectively meets both the burden of production and the burden of persuasion because it's a stare and compare. It's merely uh, the government um, uh, putting up on a large screen in the courtroom a copy of the taxpayer's uh, tax return that shows the amount that, um, that was claimed and then putting up the receipt that uh, shows the amount, the actual receipt that shows the amount that uh, was received by the taxpayer. And the mere stare and compare <clears throat> is the equivalent of a smoking gun, so to speak, because it is the most um, you know, concrete way of showing that the taxpayer um, failed to report that amount on the receipt on the return. Uh, because again, this is now um, uh, this is now flashing before the jury's eyes in the courtroom, and they're now viewing these exhibits that are literally um, side by side to one another. In other cases, these receipts can fill in the blanks in an allegedly fraudulent return. Of course, the government would greatly prefer direct methods to indirect methods because it's such an easy way of proving the element of substantial tax due and owing. And uh, it's so hard for the defense to refute um, this because it's it exists in uh, in in the form of hard evidence and in um, and in documents that can easily be looked at and compared. The direct method always starts with the taxpayer's return. When the taxpayer has filed a return for the year in question, the government will introduce it. In doing so, the IRS will use the taxpayer's admitted income as a baseline. For hearsay purposes, the return is deemed the taxpayer's admission as to the items included on the return. So it's um, admissible. Um, and, um, you know, again, hearsay basically states that any out of court uh, statement um, and statement is a very uh, vast term. It doesn't just mean a verbal statement. It could refer to a document. Um, the hearsay rule basically states that any out of court statement um, is, inadmissible, is inadmissible to prove the truth um, of what it contains. Um, however, there are a number of exceptions to the hearsay rule that all but swallow up the rule. And in the case of a, 
of a prosecution for tax evasion, a tax return, even though it might otherwise uh, meet the definition of hearsay, is an exception that would be admissible um, into evidence by the government in their case in chief. And not only is it admissible to prove the truth of the matter asserted that there was a tax return that was filed, but the contents of it are also admitted. And um, by contents, what the government would be getting at here is the amount that of income that the taxpayer voluntarily declared. So not only does it prove the existence of a tax return filed by the defendant taxpayer, but it also proves that the amount that was self-reported by the taxpayer was in effect the amount that he reported. And so it has a whopping uh, detrimental effect against the defense, um, especially if the gross receipts uh, prove that there was a substantial amount of understated gross income on that return. So, Mike, why don't we, before we get into example one here, just go through our next poll? Sure. All right. So this is number three. That one's up there. Final few moments on poll number three, as answers are still, the final few are still coming in. About 3% saying very familiar, 14% somewhat familiar, 37% not very familiar, and 46% no idea. So we'll give it uh, just two more seconds here. All right, close down this third poll. And we're back on your slide. Thanks. Super. Here are some examples of the direct method. Um, in our first example, the return reflects uh, 40000 of gross income. Um, and again, this all stems from uh, the rule of evidence and how uh, the tax return is actually an exception to the uh, hearsay rule. Um, if the return reflects 40000 of gross income, the government can treat that amount as a given. Um, and so... The government's going to, uh, you know, tell the jury, and uh, that can be uh, the defense can object all they want, but um, this is what it is. It's uh, the amount that was self-reported by the taxpayer on the return, and uh, the defense can object to it all they want, but the government can treat that amount as a given and can uh, argue uh, vociferously to the jury that that was the amount that the defendant. Uh, self-reported because that's the amount that was on the return, the $40,000. Defendant um, can later state, oops, I was wrong. I didn't have $40,000, only $30,000. Well, you can easily see um, how that's going, how the jury's going to laugh 
um, the defend, defendant right out of the courtroom with an argument like that. Um, that is a tough road to hoe because taxpayers typically don't overstate their income on returns. Um, so uh, the defense is going to have to craft um, a more compelling argument uh, than this because this is going to only prove that uh, and sink the defendant into quicksand even more um, than the uh, than the government standing up and pointing that amount of uh, gross income out to the jury. Uh, sometimes the defense uh, actually winds up stepping on their own toes and hurting themselves more than the government does in these cases. And this is the classic example of how a defendant might hurt themselves more than uh, the government would uh, by asserting a uh, fool as foolish an argument as this one. An example two, if the taxpayer wants to dispute additional unreported income by asserting additional deductions, the fact that these additional deductions weren't on the return constitutes an admission that there weren't any additional deductions. So this is where it gets tricky because we've spent a little bit of time talking about how the amount of unreported income alone is not dispositive of um, of uh, additional tax due and owing, and that the taxpayer defendant can come forward to uh, suggest to the jury that there were deductions that they were entitled to and that they did not claim on the return. Um, this is a little counterintuitive to that discussion that we had earlier because this um, states emphatically that if the additional deductions weren't on the return in the first place, that that's an admission by the taxpayer that there weren't any additional deductions. So what we're engaging in here is a fiction under the law that uh, pretty much um, sets down a baseline rule um, that the government will argue strenuously at trial. And that rule is that um, you know, is that uh, jury, um, you know, you've heard testimony from the defense's um, expert accountant in this case that there were additional deductions that uh, the defendant was entitled to and that if taken would have offset the amount of underreported gross income substantially enough that, um, that there was very little unreported income. I want you to forget about all of that because I want you to use your common sense and your common knowledge in this example. Don't you think that if the taxpayer had deductions um, that uh, were available to him or her, that his accountant um, would have um, claimed those deductions on the tax return? And don't you think that the uh, taxpayer um, would have been very eager to have explored whatever deductions were available to him um, as not unlike any other taxpayer to, um, you know, to lower the amount of gross income and do so um, lawfully because, you know, deductions are lawful in the first place. These are all arguments that the government's attorney would make. And the government's attorney would also state that um, state that there is a presumption under the law that the fact that these deductions weren't included on the return, um, that there's this presumption that, um, that 
of an admission that there weren't any additional deductions. So by admission, um, you know, the, the non-existence of those deductions um, speaks louder than words. Um, and so these are all things that the government's uh, prosecutor would be relying upon in their summation. Now, we discussed this a little bit. Criminal numbers, sentencing numbers, and civil numbers all diverge. Um, there are different um, burdens of proof for establishing each one of these. Um, the government, of course, will be the most conservative where it has the highest burden of proof because that's when it has the hardest amount of um, that's when it has to uh, roll that boulder up the hill and it has uh, to make its most um, compelling uh, introduction of evidence uh, when the burden is at beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why um, it's not unusual for the government uh, to use different amounts during the guilt innocent phase versus the sentencing phase because in the sentencing phase, the government does not have uh, to... Uh, have as high a burden of proof in proving the amount of unreported tax as it does to a jury in the case in its case in chief. At trial, there may there might be more unreported income than what the government asserts in the guilt or innocence phase of trial. Um, this is a, a quick and dirty example. The government uh, might believe that there is 110,000 of unreported income, but 30,000 of that could go either way. Um, and the reason why is because there might not be enough concrete evidence to prove evasion of 30,000. In that case, the government will assert only 80,000 during the guilt or innocence phase because that amount, it has rock hard, unshakable proof or evidence to prove. Um, and again, um, why does the government uh, fall back on introducing only rock hard? solid, hard, unshakable evidence in the guilt or innocence phase, because if there's a rumbling or shaking with that excess $30,000 that the defense attorney um, is able to, um, you know, exploit, um, this tends to introduce reasonable doubt, not only for that $30,000, but for the $80,000 that the government otherwise um, has uh, rock hard, solid, unshakable proof for. And so the government doesn't want to risk the fact that um, the defense will be able to make um, a mountain out of a molehill, so to speak, by um, poking holes into the uh, $30,000 and then um, by uh, extrapolation um, attack the rock hard, solid $80,000 number by stating um, how the weakness of the $30,000 should spill over to the $80,000. And so for this reason, the government usually selects a smaller number at the guilt or innocence stage. At the sentencing stage, the government goes all out and they'll um, ask that the, um, that the judge uh, consider the additional $30,000, even though that amount was not introduced at trial and it was only $80,000 of, um, of unreported tax. Now, on the, on the civil side, the government always seeks the maximum because we're dealing with a lower standard of proof. 
To return to Adam, the service might only establish 75 grand in unreported income during guilt or innocence because the evidence regarding the other 25 is a little shaky. Later, at the penalty phase, prosecutors can use the whole shebang, the $100,000 amount, to maximize the criminal penalties against poor Adam. And this actually is, it sounds very um, uh, unfair because at the end of the day, the uh, dollar amount of unreported um, tax or um, drives uh, the penalties, including the including whether a the defendant goes to jail and b if he goes to jail how much time he spends. So it almost seems unfair that the government is able to bootstrap this additional twenty five thousand dollars into um, the uh, criminal tax number at sentencing um, as a way of exacting a higher amount of punitive punishment against the defendant, even though they were relieved of any obligation to prove that extra $25,000 at trial because they went with a lesser number. Uh, strategically, um, you know, the government can do this, but at the end of the day, you know, it does seem unfair because um, our friend Adam here could go to jail for and a far longer period of time if the sentencing judge finds that he did in fact evade a hundred thousand dollars um, and not just seventy five thousand dollars so the argument uh, that defense attorney makes is um, you know why then shouldn't the government have had the uh, burden of proving the extra $25,000 at trial if um, if this extra $25,000 means the difference between uh, whether Adam spends five uh, more months in a cold dank uh, jail cell um, at uh, you know in at any one of a number of federal detention centers or um, you know one month in a cold dank jail cell uh, so there are um, arguments that go uh, both ways and uh, one can imagine the arguments that um, you know the defense makes and those that the prosecution makes. <clears throat> Mike, why don't we, um, before we get into this next slide, jump in with our next poll? Sure. All right. So this is number four, and uh, we will have five totals, so we one at the end today. So obviously a lot more content uh, remaining on today's session, but perhaps this is a poll question to help you uh, what you've learned so far. Overwhelming majority saying they learned something new on today's session, which is just fantastic. Appreciate seeing that. Through saying reminding reminded of something useful. Small number for CPE, about 2% saying other. This is our penultimate poll. We will have one more at the end of the session today. But we'll go ahead and close this one down. And we're back up on your slide. Thanks. Now, in all criminal cases, um, if there's no smoking gun, the prosecutor has to rely on circumstantial evidence. And this is where we get into indirect methods. The government um, may argue that there is circumstantial evidence, which logically leads to the inescapable conclusion that the taxpayer's return is wrong, even though the government can't point to exactly what it is. Now, I realize that's a mouthful, 
Um, and one of the things I want to preface this uh, with is the following. The government, um, of course, prefers a direct method of proof because it's more solid and it's easier to show the jury, you know, two um, exhibits, uh, that being the tax return and that being a, a receipt that uh, shows a far higher amount of income than was self-reported by the taxpayer. Uh, that staring compare is, is so um, simple um, that it uh, can be understood by an elementary school student. And so the government uh, far uh, rather uh, prefers to, um, you know, use a direct method case. However, there are some times when a direct method case um, is not as easy to prove as a stare and compare example that um, I've, been, uh, I, I've been using throughout this presentation. And so we're going to discuss that now in uh, our further slides. Now, indirect methods are subject to heightened scrutiny, and that's because um, it's a little bit easier uh, for it's well let me get let me step back a little bit indirect methods can be very confusing they're confusing enough to us as tax professionals and one can only imagine the confusion and havoc that they wreak on a jury of lay persons um, they're not easy to understand and they are not as um, foolproof and um, and they are not as airtight as these other methods are. Um, there is a lot of um, not so much speculation, but assumptions that uh, go into indirect methods. Um, and we're going to explore that um, later on. And so if you if you take into consideration the fact that um, the criminal justice system, um, you know, in uh, the criminal justice system, um, is the, you know, uh, the criminal justice system um, uh, has a presumption of innocence when it comes to uh, crimes and uh, how the uh, most uh, punitive of all punishments is a deprivation of life or the deprivation of liberty, um, you can begin to see why courts might be a little skeptical about the government being uh, or using indirect methods, um, especially if a direct method might otherwise exist. We don't want an, an uh, otherwise innocent person to go to jail for a crime they didn't commit. That's what it comes down to. And that's why appellate courts closely scrutinize indirect methods. And therefore, the chance of reversal on appeal is great. There's a multi-step process here that the government must uh, follow before they um, can use an indirect method. Now, I'm telling you two different things that are at odds with one another. First, on one hand, I'm telling you that the government um, would far rather prefer the use of a direct method where it's as simple as a uh, staring compare um, for the jury to see that the defendant um, underreported gross income. But there are always going to be those direct cases where they're not, where the evidence is not as damning as a staring compare, and where the government might otherwise prefer an indirect method, even though a direct method exists, but it's a little bit shaky. 
And this is where the courts are very careful. Uh, before they will give the government their blessing to um, use an indirect method to um, make out their case in chief, they want the courts, that is, to be 100% sure that a direct method is not available, or if it is, it's unreliable. So here is the um, the safeguards that the, that the courts put in place before the government can use an indirect method. So to distill this and boil it down to its basic elements, the government has, uh, in this hypothetical, a direct method, but it's a shaky direct method. And so instead of relying on the direct method, the government wants to use the indirect method because it feels that it can prove its case better and more concretely with the indirect method. Well, before the government can be allowed to do that, it has to prove to the court the following. One, that the direct method is not available or is unreliable. Um, an example of uh, not available is that the taxpayer's books and records are unavailable. Um, and you know, a classic example is that the taxpayer never kept them or lost or destroyed them. By unreliable, what we're referring to here is that the taxpayer's books and records are available, but they contain uh, glaring errors or um, a monstrosity of errors. Uh, this barrier prevents prosecutors from ignoring hard evidence that may not be as damning um, and by hard evidence, I'm referring to direct evidence in favor of circumstantial evidence that um, can be doctored up. And so indirect methods um, are, you know, indulge in, um, uh, indulge in a lot of assumptions. And we don't want an innocent person going to jail uh, based on assumptions that were made in an indirect method case. We want the evidence to be so concrete and so overwhelming that um, it uh, proves to an ordinary jury uh, or, or shocks the conscience of an ordinary jury juror to the point that they believe beyond a reasonable doubt that there was uh, tax due and owing and that there was willfulness and all of the um, uh, other remaining elements of tax evasion. Second, the government, in order to get the court to approve an indirect method, has to prove that there's a likely taxable source for the unreported income. The government must show some source from which the taxpayer was likely to have gotten the unreported income. So in an example here, we have Adam who has uh, who has uh, who may have reported $100,000 of income from a consulting company in 2015 and Zippo in 2016. Well, that would raise a flag, and that flag would probably be as big as a flag um, at uh, uh, at one of those uh, rodeos, uh, at those bull rodeos. Um, if Adam uh, was so. Um, naive to have reported 100,000 from his consulting company in 15 and nothing in 2016. Now, what happens if the judge determines that the prosecutor has met both elements of this test? If the uh, judge determines that the prosecutor has met both elements of this test, then the uh, judge gives the government the blessing for using indirect evidence. 
And if so, there are five approved models that the government can use for indirect method. The first is um, the net worth method. The second is the expenditures method. The third is the bank deposits and cash expenditures method. The fourth is the percentage markup method. And the fifth is the indirect methods to prove overstated deductions. I'm going to try to work uh, through these um, as quickly as we can, but I want to just give you, um, you know, a little bit of, um, uh, of background information here. Um, these methods are highly complex and um, usually fall within the ken of the forensic accountant. We could spend on each indirect method as long as you know uh, a month. Um, going through hypotheticals and exploring all of the accounting uh, that goes into them. Uh, but uh, we're down to a little time and our time is precious. So I'm going to try to introduce you to as many of these as I can before we um, have to break. The net worth method. <clears throat> this attempts to demonstrate that the taxpayer had more taxable income than what was reported. How? By showing that the taxpayer had an increase in his net worth, an increase that could only have come from taxable income. The government um, establishes its case through the net worth method in the following steps. Uh, the government establishes the defendant's opening net worth using cost basis. Typically, these are for multiple tax years. The government will show at the beginning of the first prosecution year, and I should distinguish this by stating that the beginning of the first prosecution year isn't necessarily the beginning of the tax year. So uh, the government is able to set what the prosecution years are, and they may uh, deviate from what uh, the fiscal year is or what the uh, taxable year is for that uh, taxpayer under uh, whatever accounting uh, model they're using. Um, so don't uh, confuse the prosecution year with um, the traditional tax year or fiscal year or whatever tax uh, you know reporting um, system um, the taxpayer is on. The government will show at the beginning of the first prosecution year the defendant's net worth. Net worth must be calculated for non-cash assets at cost basis, not fair market value. If the taxpayer's assets appreciate in value before a realizable event, uh, like the sale of the assets, the taxpayer does not have income. An unrealized appreciation is not taxable income. The government will show increases in net worth at the end of each of the years for the prosecution period. The government would subtract any no non-taxable receipts, increase in net worth, and any acquisition of new assets may have been financed by income that wasn't taxable. The government must, of course, prove willfulness, and um, that can be done directly or by inference. We discussed the whole theory of willful blindness. Uh, there are some reasons why the government would prefer to use the direct method over the net worth method. Uh, we've discussed those already. The appellate courts are suspicious of indirect methods and will allow their use only if the government has no other recourse and only if the method is strictly applied. Um, secondly, um, uh, this is a little bit of a soft note, but uh, there aren't as many IRS agents who are um, in the know, so to speak, 
um, and um, fully um, versatile with indirect methods. And so that's why the direct method tends to be the um, uh, the method uh, that is used most commonly. Mike, I just um, I know there's a ton to cover here. We're we're at our time, and I want to make sure we're able to hear from uh, Sherpa. Absolutely. On today's session, so we can hang on. There's a lot of uh, ton of, of uh, great questions as well. But uh, for this moment, I think when you uh, make sure it only gets on here. I think we we'll get your screen up and going, and we'll do our best to. Uh, get you all set. Sure. Uh, and let's just make sure that's how we're going. Okay. So, uh, Mike, once again, thanks so much. We'll, we'll come back to you. Uh, I just want to uh, make sure we get to hear from Sheriff Files. So Thank you, Matt. You should be all set and ready to go, and I'll turn it over to you. Hi, Ben. Um, first off, I appreciate you all allowing me the time here to uh, talk a little bit about Sheriff File. Um, so generally how I'd like to start is tell you a little bit about ShareFile and how we're relevant in your industry there. Um, so ShareFile is actually used by over 20,000 firms uh, across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we are widely considered as one of the easiest and most secure platforms for uh, sending, receiving, storing, and managing your data. Um, we do that a few different ways. Uh, we highly recommend uh, setting up a quick online demonstration if you're interested in learning more about this, and I'll provide you some contact information at the end here. Um, but some background behind ShareFile, we started back in 2005. We were built specifically for the accounting industry. Uh, we're headquarters here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I saw some uh, North Carolina folks in the chat earlier. Um, so we were acquired by Citrix in 2011. After our acquisition, uh, our acquisition by Citrix, uh, we really expanded in the market. We got the data security uh, that's back there behind Citrix, uh, and now we currently have over 100,000 businesses uh, worldwide, over 100 million users using our tool. Uh, we're widely endorsed by a lot of top associations. Um, but the number one reason why we're used by so many accounting firms is we're extremely easy. Uh, we can work with your Outlook and Gmail with some very neat integrations. So you could be actually be able to email this information back and forth with your clients. Not only having a secure way to send this information over, but also an easy and secure way to receive information from your clients. We're automatically scanning for viruses, malware, adware. Um, and this webinar is very relevant. And I'm glad I, I got a chance to speak here because when it's uh, comes down to data security. Uh, our presenter was absolutely right. It's a, a huge focus, especially within this industry, because uh, you are dealing with highly sensitive data. Um, so not only is ShareFile easy, we're also secure. Uh, we encrypt all your information in transit and at rest for both you and the client. Um, also, as this information is being stored as well. Um, so in addition to working with your email, we can also communicate directly with your tax software. Uh, in addition to be able to share files securely back and forth, we can also get documents signed electronically. This is great for 8879s, engagement letters, any form that you need to be filled out by the client or need to obtain a signature. Um, this works on any device, so clients are actually able to access this on their tablets and smartphones. They can provide handwritten signatures for you. Um, it's great for multi-party signing. Uh, the case study we ran last year showed that we got, on average, a 94% faster return time when signing documents through right signature. Uh, we also got an over 85% adoption rate. So the number of electronic signatures or documents being signed electronically is growing at a tremendous rate. And it's a, a great chance to really help streamline your workflow there, help save you a lot of time, 
and offer a secure way to get those documents back and forth. Uh, and last thing I want to talk about a little bit about the security. Um, you could see the slide here. We use uh, accredited data centers. It's all encrypted with that 256-bit encryption and transit and at rest. We do daily third-party security audits, 99% uptime. We're fully compliant with state and federal regulations, uh, including HIPAA, SEC, FINRA compliance. Um, but overall, we're easy, we're secure. Uh, you can get documents signed electronically. You can send, receive files securely uh, with your clients and also have an easy way to store and access those files from anywhere on any device. Um, last slide, you can see here, uh, we do have some very neat promotions we offer to our webinar attendees, uh, where if you want to get a chance to really evaluate this tool during your tax season, we're offering up to 42% off for your first six months of the service. Uh, you can see my contact information here below. Feel free to reach out to me directly if you have any questions or if you're interested in setting up a quick demo to see how the tools work. Um, but that's all I got for you. I appreciate you all taking the time to hear me out. Uh, but I'll go ahead and turn the floor back over to you. Dylan, thank you. I'll jump right back in here and we'll launch one more polling question. That one is up on the screen right now. Let me just take a moment to say thank you so much to Citrix Sharefile for helping bring this course to our members today. Very appreciative of the support and all the great content that you help bring to the CPA Academy platform. Obviously, a lot of ShareFile users joining us today and a few others who certainly benefited from learning a little bit more about what you have to offer. So once again, thank you so much. As this poll is wrapping up, just a quick reminder, we'll get to work on issuing credit. You'll see an email from us here at CPA Academy letting you know that it's all set and available in your CPA Academy account. Copy of those handouts remain available in your account as well. And we'll get a recording of today's session posted to our archive library later in the day. So that's going to do it for this poll. We'll go ahead and close it down once again. Thank you to Dylan and Sharefile for helping bring this content to our members. And we will go ahead and wrap up this session. And Mike, thank you as well, of course. Uh, fantastic job as always. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate Thank everything you, that goes into these sessions. A lot of great questions came in. We'll make sure that uh, we get those passed along to you once we wrap up with the course. Mike, looking forward to having you back with us soon. Super. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks. If you are scheduled for our next session, we're just getting underway. And so looking forward to seeing our members on our next course. Thanks, everyone.